on today's episode of Mile Higher. Today, we're going to be talking about the Bennington Triangle. From the years 1945 to 1950, a total of five disappearances occurred in the Bennington Triangle. And it's believed that there is some sort of supernatural or paranormal force that caused the string of disappearances. Then clearly there is something paranormal going on in this area. Benning Wentworth went to the area and reportedly saw weird flashing lights and heard screams coming from the trees and shadowy figures. Henry found Carl's body. His gun was next to him and no bullets had been discharged. He had been warned multiple times not to go over the ridge, but stay on the Hell Hollow side instead. Right before I lost the trail, everything crescendoed into this weird sort of dizzying confusion. And then suddenly it got dark and a dense fog rolled in. I still think I was sucked through some sort of time-space continuum. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 262. Yay. You guys made it loud and clear that you do not want me to stop saying the episode number. I told you guys they love it. Apparently, they do. apparently I was very wrong about that. So yeah. I apologize for <laughs> I apologize. Can you issue an, episode. an apology, please? Yes. Let me you get should... my ukulele out one <laughs> second. Oh. Yeah, that would be nice. Um, anyway, today we're gonna be talking about the um Bennington Triangle. Now, you may have heard of the Alaskan Triangle. Uh the, the other Bermuda yes, Triangle. That one's the, <laughs> that's the, the other big one. The other one that's very popular. <laughs> Bermuda Triangle. We've talked about the Bermuda Triangle before, haven't we? We have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have. Um, there's also the Bridgewater Triangle. Yep. Today, we're going to be talking about the Bennington Triangle. Now, this is a very interesting case. Um, Several people, five people, all went missing in this area with very unexplained circumstances that are still unexplained to this day. Yes, leaves a lot of possibilities out there to what Mm -hmm. happened to them. Mm -hmm. So today, we'll be pondering the possibilities. I always find these, these stories very interesting about going missing in you know public land wilderness mm-hmm. areas national parks things like that because especially when there's absolutely no evidence of them that's left behind they're they seemingly vanished into thin air and that's mm-hmm. the end of it and that's what happens in these particular disappearances you can't help but wonder what's going on mm-hmm. what happened mm-hmm. is it something easily explainable like did they just get lost or yeah. come to the elements or is there something more this was over a fairly short period of time too like, which makes it even stranger yep 1945 to 1950 mm-hmm. five years five people in five years shall we dive in let's dive in so the bennington triangle is an area in the far southwestern corner of vermont in which a series of mysterious disappearances took place in the mid 20th century The so-called Bennington Triangle is named after the town of Bennington, Vermont. Naturally, the Bennington Triangle mystery is baked in local folklore and legend, and it's believed that there is some sort of supernatural or paranormal force that caused the string of disappearances. The triangle lies in the Green Mountain National Forest. Glastonbury Mountain is considered to be the center. The three points of the triangle are generally considered to be the area around Bennington, Glastonbury, and Somerset. Bennington is home to Bennington College, and the town has a population of around 
15,000 people. Glastonbury and Somerset were once thriving mountain towns long ago, but by 1934, the two towns only had three residents, just three of them. They were both disincorporated and became ghost towns. But the Bennington Triangle is most famous, of course, for the disappearances of the mid-20th century, but there has been reported strange incidents over the years, dating all the way back to 1761. That year, New Hampshire Governor Benning Wentworth went to the area and reportedly saw weird flashing lights and heard screams coming from the trees and shadowy figures in the woods. People have reported experiencing these strange things even today. Many people say the area is home to Bigfoot, of course, and a high level of UFO activity. So if that's true, then clearly there is something paranormal going on in this area. From the years 1945 to 1950, a total of five disappearances occurred in the Bennington Triangle. All of these people not only went missing from the same area, but they went missing during the same time of year. But there were actually two disappearances that occurred in the Bennington Triangle between 1940 and 1945. The first was the disappearance of 13-year-old Melvin Hills, who went missing from Bennington on October 11, 1942. Melvin disappeared without a trace, and he hasn't been seen or heard from since. And we don't really have any more info than that on his particular case. The second is the disappearance of Carl Herrick. But since Carl's body was found and there was definitive cause of death, the case isn't always mentioned as one of the Bennington Triangle disappearances. However, the circumstances of this case are strange. Carl Herrick had been on a hunting trip in November 1943 with his cousin Henry, about 10 miles northeast of Glastonbury. At some point, the two became separated and he didn't return to camp. Three days later, Henry found Carl's body. His gun was next to him and no bullets had been discharged. His body was surrounded by strange large footprints that Henry identified as bear tracks. Medical examiners found that Carl's ribs had punctured his lungs and he'd been squeezed to death. Some people claim that bears wouldn't squeeze a person to death. This is true in the sense that they don't give bear hugs or something like that. But squeeze in this case seems to be shorthand for asphyxiation. The question is if this is possible for a bear to do to a person. Have they considered an owl? No, or a but hawk? I, don't, I don't know that a bird of prey is going to attack a human. I guess it would no. be pretty obvious, right? Yeah, I don't know that this ever happened as far as like being killed by an owl. We were just watching a live stream on owls and the power. Yeah, 500 yeah. times. 500 pounds of pressure per square foot. That was it. Very interesting. Square inch. Square inch. Square inch is what they that have. That makes more yeah, sense. Yeah, that's pretty wild. Right. So could it have been a bear? Possibly. But it sounds like from his injuries, there was no signs of a bear attack. Because bears generally like use their big paws, their claws, and mm -hmm. just claw you to pieces. Yeah. How often not, have you heard of a bear squeeze? The only thing I was thinking hug. of is like, what if you were on the ground and the bear like, you know, kind of crushed you, like jumped up on top of you and pushed down with all their weight. But I think there'd still be more signs that it was a bear, right? Yeah. From their there, Wouldn't from their there claws. be more instances of bears doing such things, you know? Yeah. It seems kind of, I don't know. Another thing I was going to mention, though, is that the fact that his, he never discharged his weapon, which if you were dealing with a bear, you'd think you'd have at least taken a shot at the bear. Yeah. No try. shots were fired, so that's kind of weird. He was stunned by whatever attacked him. Potentially, taken by surprise. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But 
It's also good to remember it was 1943 and they were still doing lobotomies back then. So that is a good point. Don't know how good were they those really medical in 43? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They've oh, been doing shit. lobotomies a long time. Wow. We've come a long way. Yes. Especially, man, lobotomies. That's a whole nother. Yeah. They've been doing them since like the 50s and 60s and they started phasing out. Oh, yeah. Right. Scary stuff, man. That's some wild shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, we're getting off topic. But anyway, Carl's date of death is listed as November 23rd, 1943. The disappearance commonly referred to as the first Bennington Triangle disappearance is the case of Mitty Rivers. Mitty Rivers was a 74-year-old man who was an experienced woodsman and guide. He guided hunting groups pretty often in the woods of Glastonbury. On November 12th, 1945, Mitty took a group out hunting in a place called Hell Hollow, which is in the southwest Glastonbury woods. Everything seemed to go well that day, and once the hunting expedition was over, Mitty started leading the group back to camp. But at this point, he started to hike a few yards ahead of the group. He said he was going to go check something out beyond a bend in the trail. And he said he'd meet them back at camp for lunch. He hadn't taken one with him that morning. So by all regards, he was coming back for lunch. The group wasn't too worried, though. Again, Mitty was very experienced and knew the area well. But when the group made it back to camp and the clock struck 3 p.m., they realized that Mitty had never returned. There was no trace of him anywhere and no sign he'd arrived back at camp. And as it turns out, Mitty was actually very familiar with the area they started the hunt, but not the Bickford Hollow area where they ended up. In fact, he had been warned multiple times not to go over the ridge, but stay on the Hell Hollow side instead. Mitty had disappeared somewhere near Harbor Road, also known as Long Trail Road, and Vermont Route 9 in the Bickford Hollow area. When he didn't return to camp, The group, of course, contacted authorities, and for the next eight days, 50 or so soldiers and locals searched for Mitty. Fifteen of those searchers were employees of Ben Mount Paper, which is where Mitty worked. Even the local Boy Scouts came out to help, and sadly, the fire chief actually asked for 500 men to volunteer, but that did not happen. People were offered $4 a day to help, which is $67 today, but dedicated searchers wouldn't take the money. Everyone tirelessly combed the woods and the nearby area in search of him, but the only thing they found was a spent rifle cartridge belonging to Mitty in Bickford Hollow. He was now lost in the woods without food in below freezing winter temperatures, so not a good situation. Since he was an experienced outdoorsman, many people held their breath and waited for the day that he'd walk back into town, but unfortunately, he never did. Given the amount of time that's passed, we obviously know Mitty is no longer alive, but his remains have also never been found to this day. So unlike the first first case, first disappearance we were talking about, there was a spent rifle cartridge. Mm-hmm. So that means he shot at something. Correct. What was it? Hmm. Are you already leaning towards Bigfoot, my friend? Is this turning into another skeptic versus believer? Don't get me started, kids. I will convince you. We're going to go down the Bigfoot road? It had, I mean, thing with Bigfoot, very intelligent, okay? Mm -hmm. And very sneaky, light on his toes, apparently. Yes. Very quiet through the forest. I don't believe in Bigfoot. But, if like, what would have taken him and made him disappear? They found his cartridge, but had it been an animal, there would have been other signs that he was attacked by this animal. Here's the thing. And we're already getting into speculation here, but I am more likely to believe that he was abducted by a UFO than Bigfoot. Okay. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, that's not a bad, bad uh, theory. It's there. not my first theory of what happened, of course, but. What if he was just eaten? 
Yeah. Or something or there is the there's there'd a be few signs, other options. There'd be blood. Like anybody that gets taken by an animal, mm-hmm. there's gonna be some well, Bigfoot. signs of it. Wouldn't there be blood for Bigfoot? Yeah, but Bigfoot is not just an animal. He just scoops <laughs> you up and puts you in his backpack, takes you home. <laughs> I don't know about a backpack, but he'll scoop you in his arms and run off with you. I think he got <laughs> eaten. Carry, I think he got carried them like a baby <laughs> through the woods. Yeah. Okay. No, I think he got eaten and they just never found his remains. Or maybe they were scattered. But how like far checked every more square likely. inch? True, but he he would have likely been taken near the side of the the cartridge, right? Yeah, because that's where he likely fired at whatever was attacking him. And had he been attacked by an animal, there'd absolutely be signs of an animal dragging a whole man off into the woods. Yeah, I don't know, eating him. He, there would be something. And they did have a lot of people out searching. That's Fifty true. people at this, this time. Area, the Boy though. Scouts were there. They would have found it. Well, Julia was saying, saying they killed off all of the, the mountain lions or right? cougars up there. Yeah, back in like the, I think it was the late 1800s. They okay. killed pretty much like all the cougars. I think there's been some like reported sightings. Maybe a know, handful. In the past like 50, 100 years, but not really. And they haven't even been substantiated. They're basically extinct, the eastern cougar. So with that in mind, the only natural apex predator would be the bear. And hmm. I would also keep in mind, too, that a cougar would kill a human differently than a bear would. Right. For so. sure. Right. They go for the throat hmm. and there would be blood and there'd be like drag marks of him being dragged off. In the, and they probably would have found his some sort of remains. He's gone without a trace. Nothing. Poof. Well, before we theorize more, let's continue to talk about the other people who went missing. So Paula Jean Weldon was an 18-year-old college student at Bennington College. She was a sophomore majoring in art, but she was considering switching to botany or music. Very different fields there. But her case has become one of the most famous of the Bennington Triangle disappearances. She was born October 19th, 1928, and she grew up in Stamford, Connecticut. Her father, William Archibald Weldon, was a prominent industrial engineer, designer, and architect. He worked for Revere Copper and Brass Company, designing trendy household utensils and cocktail shakers. Her mother was named Jean Douglas, and Paula was the oldest of four girls. She graduated from Stanford High School in 1945, and her interests included skating, bicycling, hiking, square dancing, camping, swimming, and playing guitar. Paula was an experienced camper and hiker. Nothing was particularly unusual about Paula's life. She was a hard worker who studied a lot. She earned good grades and worked at the college's cafeteria. On December 1st, 1946, Paula finished up two shifts at the cafeteria and then went home to change. She and her roommate, Elizabeth Johnson, chatted for a while, and eventually Paula told her that she was going to take a break from studying and go on a long walk, but she didn't specify where. Paula then hitchhiked over to the Long Trail section of Glastonbury Mountain at 2.45 p.m. She had been picked up on Route 67A just outside the college entrance. The driver was Lewis Knapp, a contractor, and he was on his way home from work. Paula told Lewis where she wanted to go, and he agreed to drive her towards the area up until he got to his house. Paula almost slipped getting into his truck, and Lewis warned her, be careful. And apparently that was the only conversation they had. Lewis dropped her off, like he said, on Route 9, about two and a half miles from her destination. Paula thanked him for the ride, and that was that. Lewis was eventually interviewed by police and cleared. Paula was spotted multiple times on the trail later, so he seems to be an unlikely suspect. And again, hitchhiking sounds suspicious, especially today, but it was very common back then. 
Keep in mind, this is Vermont in the winter. Not only would it be pretty cold outside, but the sun set at around 4.30 p.m., so she didn't have much time for an actual hike. She was dressed all right for the afternoon temperatures, but there'd be a drop when the sun went down, and she certainly wasn't dressed for that. It was reported that she was dressed in lightweight clothing, so not ideal for the weather. And it's believed because of this that she was you know, only planning on going for a semi-long walk instead of a super long hike. To be more specific, Paula was wearing a red parka with a fur-trimmed hood and blue jeans. For shoes, she was wearing white topsider sneakers with heavy soles. She also wore a small gold ladies Elgin wristwatch with a narrow black band. The watch had the repairs inscription 13050HD on the inside of the back case. Multiple people saw Paula on the trail that day. About 45 minutes after she hitchhiked, a watchman for the Bennington Banner named Ernie Whitman saw Paula. This was in the Bickford Hollow area. A watchman is like a newspaper's fact checker or the person that ensures everything is accurate and up to journalistic standards. The Bickford Hollow area is a valley stream off of Harbor Road. Ernie also warned Paula that it was getting late and it would be cold soon. He said that her lightweight clothing wouldn't be enough to keep her warm, but she decided to keep going on the walk anyway. She was also seen later that afternoon by an elderly couple and they watched as Paula walked up the trail in the fading daylight. She was about 100 yards away and they watched her turn the corner and out of their sight. When the couple reached the corner that they last saw her at, there was no sign of her. Paula was last confirmed to be seen at 4 p.m. She asked a man on the trail how long it was, and the man told her that it stretched all the way to Canada, and the man was right. The trail was more than 270 miles long, and it ran through the woods and forests of North Bennington all the way up to the Canadian border. Now, obviously, it probably wasn't her intention to walk all the way to Canada. People often hike short sections of through hiking trails, so in this case, part of the Glastonbury Trail. Investigators presume that she kept walking along the Bulls Brook Valley alongside Harbor Road. However, there are no confirmed sightings of her past the Fay Fuller Camp, which is towards the end of Harbor Road where it becomes a trail. The sun set around 5 p.m. and then snow started to fall a few hours later, and the accumulation was about three inches. Paula's roommate Elizabeth noticed that she didn't come home that night, but she figured that Paula was having a late night of studying at the library. But when the next morning rolled around and Paula wasn't there, Elizabeth became concerned. Her bed hadn't been disturbed, so it looked like she didn't come home that night at all. Elizabeth decided to contact some officials from the college with her concerns. At the time, students had to sign out if they were going to be off campus late at night. But Paula's name was not on that list. Students had to check in with a security officer when they returned, and Paula hadn't done that either. The president of the college became aware of her disappearance and immediately called Paula's family. He asked if Paula had come home for the weekend, but she hadn't. When Paula's mom heard the news, she collapsed in shock and she was confined to her bed. Her dad immediately got into his car and drove to Bennington to search. College officials organized a small search party to scour campus for Paula, but they came up empty-handed. So they called the local sheriff for help. Paula's disappearance became big news on campus and the school even closed for a few days so students could assist in the search. Firefighters in the National Guard were eventually called in and one source reports that aircrafts were used in the search and the FBI was called in. One source puts the number of volunteer searchers at 400 people. Another says it was over 1,000 people. Imagine if we had resources like that for every missing person. I, mean, I was just thinking that. Like that's that's crazy. Pull out all of the resources mm -hmm. for this. Mm -hmm. I think especially because it was so rare back then, it was so shocking to people that they wanted to get out and help. 
Yeah, to close a whole college too, mm-hmm. to have students go and help. It's yeah, we wouldn't see that today. No. A $5,000 reward was posted for information that led to Paula being found alive. And there was also a $2,000 reward for information that led to Paula being found deceased, which that was a lot of money back then. $2,000 in today's money would be $25,000 or so, and $5,000 would be $64,000 or so. Her disappearance attracted a lot of attention in the area, especially because she was a pretty young woman from a prominent wealthy Connecticut family. It was discovered that Paula was last seen on the long trail a few days after she went missing. Her roommates hadn't known where she went for a hike, but when her missing poster ran in the Bennington Banner, an employee who had hiked the trail that day recognized her and called the police. For two weeks, the volunteer searchers looked for Paula, but nothing was found. Despite the number of volunteers, the search was very disorganized and uncoordinated. Many of the search groups were self-directed, and they went over the same areas multiple times. And... This wasted a lot of precious time and resources. That's because at the time, there was no official state police force in the area. The state had to call in the Connecticut, New York, and Massachusetts state police forces to help instead. After Paula's disappearance, thanks to her father's campaigning, the Vermont State Police was formed to prevent another disorganized response. And the Vermont State Police is responsible for all search and rescue efforts in the state's wilderness. And of course, they are still in force today. But no trace of Paula was ever recovered no bones no clothing items some people even believe that because of the cold time of year and her late departure and of course her light clothes as well that paula got lost and froze to death somewhere in the woods and it's a pretty plausible explanation and it was what the initial searchers believed happened to paula but without a body it's impossible to know exactly what happened to her and since she wasn't discovered rumors started to fly in bennington Everything from suicide to amnesia to murder, police tried to follow up on some strange leads. A waitress in Fall River, Massachusetts, claimed to have served an agitated young woman matching Paula's description. Paula's father was so intrigued by the lead that he himself disappeared for 36 hours to follow it. He hadn't told anyone about his plans until he got back to Bennington. And some people thought that this made Paula's dad a prime suspect, especially when you consider what happened the week before Paula went missing. Paula was supposed to come home for Thanksgiving, but she had decided to stay in Bennington last minute. According to Elizabeth, Paula and her dad had a falling out sometime before she went missing. At first, Elizabeth said that Paula was not distraught over this, but she later said that Paula was actually pretty depressed over it. So very conflicting statements there. The implication was that she could have committed suicide or faked her own disappearance. But Paula's family members said that she was a happy girl who wasn't having any significant problems in her life. Paula wasn't the type to leave without warning, and she left behind all of her possessions. There were also theories that Paula ran away. And according to one theory, Paula met up with a boyfriend on the trail, and she ran away with him to Canada. But there's been nothing solid to back up this theory. Paula didn't have any money on her when she went out for her hike, and she even left behind an uncashed check from her parents. Her friends also said that she never mentioned a boyfriend, and she never had a steady boyfriend before. But there was one notable lead that popped up in 1946 and again in 1952. Investigators discovered one of the last people to see Paula was a lumberjack named Fred Gadette. Fred lived on Harbor Road and saw a girl matching Paula's description in the Bickford Hollow area near Long Trail. Fred was arguing with his girlfriend when Paula walked by. He walked off angry and jealous and allegedly followed the girl into the woods. Fred was actually a person of interest in this case, and he had given them conflicting information on what he did that day. He'd also reportedly lied to police multiple different times. 
In one version of the story, Fred went to a shack alone and spent the night there. In another, he said he drove up the travel part of the trail, which turned out to be where Paula was moving towards. Fred had reportedly told two separate people that he knew the spot where Paula was buried within just a few hundred feet. But when the village attorney questioned him about this in 1952, he said he had just been joking around. 13 years after Paula went missing, bones were found in Adams, Massachusetts, which is just south of Bennington. Her family received a glimmer of hope, but sadly, it was determined that the bones were too old to belong to her. And with that, there haven't been any significant developments in the case since then. So there's definitely some different possibilities here other than just vanishing in the forest. Mm-hmm. Fred is very suspicious to me. I mean, why would you lie about, especially then, back then, about burying her somewhere? Yeah, that's fucking and weird. They're like, oh, no, I didn't. Yeah, yeah that's very, very sketchy. I'm still curious about uh, Lewis, too. I know he was cleared, but... And I guess... It is possible for somebody, I mean, you got to think these woods are super, super, um, I mean, it's all covered. It's almost like crazy that you can walk between the trees. There's so many trees here. It's easy to conceal yourself. Mm -hmm. And then it's so far north that you could potentially walk all the way to Canada and, you know, if you were trying to disappear or something, but it doesn't seem like there's any rhyme or reason for her to do that, especially since she's like, oh, I'm just going to go for a hike. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, she had plans to do other stuff and. To just disappear like that doesn't make any sense. And that'd be a pretty far walk to Canada, too. I mean, that's mm, yeah, still a decent ways. So that brings us to James Tedford, who was a 68-year-old veteran of the Second World War, living at the Soldier's Home in Bennington, Vermont. Previously, in 1940, he had lived in Franklin, Vermont, with his wife, Pearl. At the time, James was twice her age. He was 56, and she was 28. James had previously served in the U.S. military, and he served a second tour at the end of World War II. But when he came back to Franklin, he returned to find that their house had been left abandoned, and Pearl was nowhere to be found. It was believed by many that she may have left James, and James's family said that they last saw her heading to an Amico station in Franklin, but she hadn't been seen or heard from since. James became lonely and moved to the soldier's home in Bennington, And if you don't know, soldiers' homes are state-run long-term care facilities for veterans. But things started to get even more mysterious after James visited his family in Franklin in 1949. Some sources report he had also been visiting his estranged wife, Pearl, up there. On Thursday, December 1st, 1949, James's family accompanied him to a bus stop in St. Albans, Vermont. He had been visiting family in the city that day. And now he was set to get on the bus back to Bennington. He was supposed to return to the soldier's home in town that day, but he never made it there. And he was last seen by family getting on the bus. He was one of 14 passengers. The bus trip was scheduled to be about eight hours long, and it was delayed due to heavy snowfall. Passengers remember him getting on and being asleep in his chair, but they do not remember seeing him get off. Also, his personal belongings and an unfolded bus timetable were left in his seat. So it seemed like he somehow slipped off without anyone noticing and without any of his stuff. The police could only really question those on the bus that day, and they all gave the same story. They saw him get on, but they never saw him get off. They all said that he was present at the scheduled stop just before Bennington, but he wasn't on the bus when it arrived there. He was last seen wearing a cap, a gray suit, and an army overcoat. He stood five foot five and weighed 116 pounds. According to one report, James's wife disappeared without a trace in the years prior to his disappearance. 
James went to war and allegedly she was gone when he got back. So some people speculate that James had some sort of mental health crisis when he disappeared. However, according to a report from the Burlington Free Press published on December 8, 1949, General Reginald Buzzle with the Vermont State Police reported that James had been visiting his wife in Franklin on that trip. Relatives accompanied him to St. Albans, Vermont, where he boarded a bus en route to Bennington, and this was the last anyone had seen from him. Some people speculated that James never got on the bus to begin with, but that wouldn't explain all of his personal items being left on board. What's actually pretty sad is that James's disappearance wasn't noticed until a week after he went missing, and nobody started actually searching until a week after that. A friend of James claimed that James spotted him from the bus at the stop just before Bennington. He got off to chat with the friend at a rest stop, but he never got back on and hadn't been seen since. The friend said that James seemed depressed, and he said he didn't want to go back to the soldier's home in Bennington. But there's nothing conclusive that points to this theory. Now, Paul Jepson was only eight years old when he disappeared under mysterious circumstances in the Bennington Triangle. On October 12, 1950, Paul and his mom got in their truck and drove to her work. She was a caretaker at the local dump, and she was going to do a quick task, feeding some of the pigs there. She wasn't going to be gone for long, so she told Paul to wait in the truck. She told Paul not to leave the truck, but when his mother returned about an hour later, Paul was gone. He was last seen wearing a bright red jacket just like Paula Weldon was last seen in. It was the kind of red that could be hard to miss in the woods since it should contrast with all the brown and green. A large search began right away to try and find Paul, but it was unsuccessful. A tracking dog all the way from Keene, New Hampshire was also used in the search for Paul. They were able to track his scent, but they lost it at a crossroad near Glastonbury Mountain in Woodford. This was allegedly the spot Paula also went missing from. And the night Paul went missing, there was significant rainfall. And as we know, rainfall can actually make it easier for dogs to pick up and follow a scent. Paul's dad told the Albany Times Union that he thought Paul had left the truck because of the lure of the mountains. He said that Paul really wanted to go to Glastonbury Mountain, and he talked of nothing else for days before he disappeared. Paul is missing to this day, and no trace of him has ever been discovered. Some people believe that Paul left the truck on his own accord. There is some question as to whether or not Paul was autistic. At the time, this was not a defined term or diagnosis. Alternatively, it was reported that Paul had some sort of behavioral issues as well. Rumors started to fly around Paul's parents and how they were involved in his disappearance. Some people said that they had killed Paul because of his behavioral issues, and the reason why Paul's mom went to the dump that day was to dispose of his body. And the reason why his body was never found is the same reason she went to feed the pigs that day, which is very sad to think about. Within two weeks of the parents catching wind of the rumor, they stopped talking to both the police and the media entirely. Some sources state that it's local superstition that wearing red in the forest is bad luck. Wow. I, I don't know. Well, I think it's weird that his parents stopped talking to the police yeah. and the media entirely yeah. after, you know, that theory's presented. Like, mm -hmm. yeah. Know, if that wasn't true, you'd think you'd Very be sus. like, that's not true, guys. We got to find yeah. my son. But mm -hmm. it seems like it just, they're like, oh, end it there. Also, I just wanted to make a note that many people out there believe that all of these victims were wearing red. Um, that is unconfirmed. We're pretty sure that's just straight up not true. I think it makes it more interesting. Well, it's kind of like it goes back to the folklore and legends surrounding mm -hmm. this whole mm -hmm. Bennington Triangle. It's like, oh, it'd, it'd be a lot more. Red. Yeah, it'd be a lot more yeah. spooky if they were all wearing red when they disappeared. Mm -hmm. But there is, as far as we could find, there was no confirmed reports on that so yeah just keep that in mind so the next disappearance happened just a little over two weeks after paul disappeared 
And this was also in the Bennington Triangle area. On October 28, 1950, a 53-year-old woman from North Adams, Massachusetts, went missing, and her name was Frida Langer. She was on a hunting trip with her cousin, Herbert Elsner, and her husband, 58-year-old Max Langer. Their campsite sat right near the Somerset Reservoir. That day, Frida and her cousin, Herbert Elsner, decided to take a hike. But on their hike, while they were a few hundred yards away from their campsite, Frida slipped and fell into the stream. And of course, after that, all of her clothes were soaked. So since they were seemingly so close to camp, less than a quarter mile away, Frida decided to run back and change. And she told Herbert to wait at the spot on the trail while she ran back to get some dry clothes. Frida started to run off in the direction of the campsite. Herbert waited a short amount of time for her return, but she didn't come back. And when Herbert walked back to the campsite, Max said that Frida had never made it back. The alarm was quickly raised to authorities. Two helicopters and a plane from the Westover, Massachusetts Air Force Base assisted in the search. The plane landed on the Somerset Reservoir so the crew could get to the shore. The searchers were worried that she'd fallen into the reservoir, which is about 150 feet from their camp. 50 men, including state troopers and game wardens, scoured the area until nightfall, and the search continued until the next morning. But everyone feared the worst. Max Langer offered a $100 reward for anyone who could find Frida dead or alive, which is 1233 in today's cash. More searches were conducted, but they didn't initially find any sign of Frida. But about six months after she disappeared on May 12, 1951, her body was discovered by two fishermen on the banks of the Somerset Reservoir, just above the flood dam. This spot was right near the start of the East Branch Deerfield River. It was three and a half miles from the campsite. And what was really odd was that this was an area police had searched before, multiple times and never saw anything. Some reports say that Frida's body was too decomposed to determine a cause of death. One source says the doctor on the scene said that Frida died of accidental drowning, and the state's attorney took his word for it without an autopsy. The authorities still don't know exactly what Frida did from the time she disappeared to when her body was found. So, it's possible she just went further, further than they thought, and then she fell into the river some and drowned and that's why they found her later at the same spot they had searched or something else happened that just seems incredibly weird it does why would yeah. she make after falling in why would she go fuck around with the water again i mean i don't know i'm suspicious of herbert yeah i am too but could know. be something else for many decades the reported disappearances in the bennington triangle stopped but in 2008, a 27-year-old Bennington College student named Robert Singley got lost in the Bennington Triangle, but he lived to tell the tale. On September 28, 2008, Robert decided to take a day hike and do some composing. He was a music PhD student and he wanted to work on a string quartet piece surrounded by nature. Robert was an experienced hiker. That day, he was dressed in heavy boots, long shorts, a long sleeve shirt with a wool sweater, a rain jacket, and winter hat and mittens. He didn't bring a compass, GPS, a map, or even a watch, but he did bring a headlamp. So around noon that day, Robert set out on a hike off Harbor Road in Woodford Hollow, the same place Paula Weldon went on her hike six decades prior. Robert made it to the top of Bald Mountain, where he had lunch. Then he walked down the ridge line a short distance north towards Glastonbury. Then he turned back and went to explore the White Rocks to the west before finally moving east towards his car. He walked for about four or five miles before realizing something was very wrong. He should have seen his car in three miles, and he could have sworn he was on the right path. Robert said he got a very weird, eerie feeling. He said, quote, Right before I lost the trail, everything like crescendoed into this weird sort of dizzying confusion. 
And then suddenly it got dark and a dense fog rolled in. And that dark fog made him very disoriented. Robert said, I still think I was sucked through some sort of time-space continuum. Now that's really interesting. That's very interesting. And for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. It goes back to the idea that this there's some sort of paranormal energy vortex mm-hmm. in this area that could potentially be distorting time or dispo- distorting everything in that area yeah. in some way. Because if you look at what a time vortex, you know, what a these vortexes are, obviously there's scientific explanations behind it, but there's a lot of it that we don't really understand in science can't really explain for why in these certain areas for example the bermuda triangle they believe there's a vortex there sedona arizona Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's a positive energy vortex there some places it's a positive energy and some places it's a negative energy and in the places where it's a negative energy is where you get a lot of sort of hauntings and Mm -hmm. uh, demonic entities or bigfoot sightings ufo sightings things like that ufos and stuff can be in positive vortexes as well but Bad things happen basically in these negative vortexes. I wonder if they are like almost portals in a way. It could be a parallel universe. Uh, Another place where they believe a a vortex like this exists is Skinwalker Ranch. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a negative vortex there just based on all the things that go on there. But it is very interesting because at at least at Skinwalker Ranch, they've done tons of scientific studies of this area. And there is absolutely some sort of anomaly that is happening beneath the ranch and it could be some sort of natural geological anomaly that we just don't understand or have been able to figure out what it is exactly but there is this is a very i believe well studied phenomena that mm-hmm. there are these areas where just weird things happen things that activity that we attribute to ghosts and poltergeists and things like that go on in these these energy vortexes and it can get very very dark sometimes too with some of the activity but i think for sure there's something something very strange because even in 2008 i mean this wasn't that long ago Mm -hmm. robert said and and tons of other people too like if you go and like just look at people's experiences who write about going you know traveling in the bennington triangle a lot of people do report having just very weird weird vibes there like you can just Mm kind of feel like something's not quite right but you can't put put a name on it you know it's so weird to think about. Yeah, it's it's very weird. Which there's like in Colorado, for example, there is believed to be some sort of paranormal vortex down in the Crestone area near yeah. the Great Sand Dunes. Yeah, we've been there. I believe it's it's more of a positive energy vortex. It's kind of a spiritual hub down there, which is very weird. Like way out in the middle of nowhere, there's like uh, a Buddhist monastery down yeah. there, yeah. and there's also Hooper, Colorado, which has a huge UFO installation out there mm-hmm. because there's tons of UFO sightings out in the San Luis Valley. Do yeah. you guys remember um, Amy Carlson from Love yeah. Has One? Yep. Oh, yeah. There. That's yep. what happened. Yeah. Wow. Spooky. So I think there's something to it. I don't think you can just be like, all of this is easily explained by natural events or animals or even humans doing things to other humans i think there's definitely something unexplained there yeah and robert was only supposed to be in the woods for five hours the distance from the trailhead to the top of the mountain was about 4.3 miles and he was planning on being back by 5 p.m but now he was terribly lost and the night was quickly falling he pulled out his headlamp and it was actually broken 
And then the rain started to fall and it was getting very cold and Robert was worried he would get hypothermia. At this point, he knew he wasn't making it back to civilization that day, so he had to stay put and wait for the morning. Robert took shelter under a maple tree and he said, I was kind of like drawn to it in the night. It was really expelling a weird haunting energy, whatever that means. He tried to get some rest, but the cold and rain made that impossible. Once 11 p.m. had passed and Robert hadn't made it back home, his girlfriend called police and police found his car parked at the trailhead. They tried walking up to it and calling his name, but they got no response. The dense fog and dark night made it too hard to see, so police had to abandon their search. Robert tried to search for dry tinder for a fire. Over and over again, he'd come across large animal bones. Finally, he was able to find a small dry birch wood, and he lit a fire with the bark and some matches and paper in his bag. As the sun rose that next morning, Robert tried to find his way back, and he walked three or four miles before he found a sign for the Goddard Shelter, which is right near the peak of Glastonbury Mountain. Robert was baffled. He thought he'd camped only a quarter mile from his car, but instead he woke up on the other side of the ridge, six or seven miles away from where he thought he was. The location he woke up was and still is a mystery to him. Robert said, either I took a side trail, which doesn't really make sense, or something weird happened. So now he tried walking back to the maple tree and he passed it, but the trail seemed totally different, almost as if he'd never been there before. The pines looked different and there were downed trees crossing the trail. Those were things that Robert said he couldn't have missed. Luckily, the Vermont State Police were looking for him again and a police tracking dog had picked up Robert's scent and they were following it up the trail. They found Robert on the trail around 11.30 a.m. He was cold, tired, hungry, and shaken, but he was safe and unharmed. And that is the last big disappearance in the Bennington Triangle in recent years. So now we're going to take a look at some of the theories as to why people disappeared in this mysterious area. It's interesting that he didn't bring a compass or a GPS with him. Some yeah, sort. Obviously, if you hike the same area and over and over again, you're like, oh, I'm fine. I'll mm -hmm. make my way back. But it's like, at least have a compass so you know what direction you're going. I think a lot of people hike without compasses, though. Obviously, it's smart to have them, but yeah, people I guess, do. I guess that's just my uh, Boy Scout knowledge. Yeah. I'm going to always be prepared. <laughs> that's a good way to be, though. Always be prepared when you go into nature because you never it know what you're going to run into. It is true, especially if you're going to be alone. So obviously, one of the main, most logical theories is people just got lost, right? You go into dense forest. Mm-hmm. Weather patterns change constantly, especially at higher elevations. So it's, is it possible that these people just got lost in the woods, you know, weather maybe got them turned around or something or kind of had them stranded on the trail because of the weather and mm -hmm. they just succumbed to the elements eventually because they got lost and way off the trail to the point where they couldn't make their way back. I feel like I could see that if, if like one person but right. over and over again it mm -hmm. seems very odd i agree that there's so you know a handful of them the same thing happened oh the weather got bad mm -hmm. and i got disoriented and, and it's the numbers that trip me mm -hmm. up for sure and most of these people were experienced hikers which yeah. is important to know so which i mean experienced hikers i mean that's a very broad term broad term right like mm -hmm. what does that even mean but most experienced hikers know you stay on the trail you don't go off the trail because mm -hmm. it's very easy to get lost some people believe that some of these hikers may have fallen into abandoned mine shafts or wells in the area. And given how isolated it is, it's possible if you were to fall into one of these wells or mine shafts that you would just never be found. I 
think with that theory, again, it would make sense for maybe one or two people, but for all of them, true. how can that be the explanation? Very true. And that leads us to the local legend of the Bennington monster. And this is an, an actual thing in local folklore is that there is a supernatural creature known as the Bennington monster, and it's very large. It's a hairy beast, very similar to Bigfoot that's roaming these woods. Bigfoot's cousin. Yeah, exactly. Or it is just a name, you know, well, that's what they're seeing is Bigfoot or a Bigfoot. Mm -hmm. So one story claims that the Bennington monster was spotted in the area sometime in the early 1800s. A stagecoach full of passengers was traveling when they had to pull over due to a sudden downpour. The rain washed out the road and everyone had to wait for it to ease up. But while they waited, the driver noticed that there was these massive footprints in the mud. As he turned to ask a passenger what he thought about them, the others noticed a terrifying creature. The creature was big and hairy and had no footwear. It pushed the stagecoach over before running off into the woods. So if that story's true, then I don't know what other possibilities there is than Bigfoot to push over a stagecoach. Like, that's either a really, really big bear, which I've never, I don't think bear would take the time to push over a whole stagecoach, maybe. Or it was Bigfoot. I don't know. Then there's the local legend of the wild man. So some believe that the disappearances are the work of this wild man or a wild man McDowell. On April 4th, 1892, a sawmill worker in Glastonbury using the name Henry McDowell got into a dispute with a man named John Crawley. It's not known what sparked the argument, but something John said enraged Henry. In fact, it made him so mad that he picked up a rock and used it to bludgeon John to death. Henry ran, but he was quickly apprehended by police in Norwalk, Connecticut. From there, he was sent to Waterbury State Hospital, an insane asylum. But Henry was able to charm the staff into letting him out in the yard. So when they did that, he escaped by hiding in a coal cart and took off, and he was never seen again. Legend had it that he fled the asylum to live in the mountains, and he became a hairy, deranged wild man. There were rumors that Henry would sometimes travel down from the woods into the towns of Bennington and Glastonbury to expose himself to unsuspecting women passing by. That's so fucking creepy. But that's very weird. Of course, many historians do not think the wild man was responsible for the disappearances. The wild man committed his murder in 1892. And again, the first disappearance happened in 1945. So that's 53 years later. Yeah. And he would have been very, very, very old wild man. At that point in time. That don't add up. Likely dead. But many people believe that he's potentially responsible for the disappearance. Sometimes it seems like the legend combines, you know, both this Bennington monster and this wild man into one creature, perhaps. Then there's also something known as a man-eating stone. Locals have said that Glastonbury Mountain is cursed. According to the legend of the Native American Abenaki tribe of Vermont, Glastonbury Mountain is the place where the four winds meet. They believe the mountain is unsafe because of the high winds and strange noises that come from its woods. But according to legend, there was a man eating stone in the mountains, and when someone would step on it, the stone would open up and swallow the person whole. Now, let's talk about animal attacks a little bit more. Even well, kind of what do you think about the stone? <laughs> I think the stone is possible. <laughs> do you? Sure. Huh. I, I, I tend to believe a lot of the Native Americans. Um stories and, and their accounts of history because they've been here a long time they've no definitely that's seen, true seen some stuff maybe i've just never heard of a man-eating stone before this wouldn't that I don't well it's know. not like a stone that like opens its jaws and it's got like <laughs> teeth like biting down on them it's just like they vanish into into the stone like, oh, I maybe know. it's like a portal or something that it's okay walking over. that 
that could be in my mind the most likely explanation for all of this is that this is a vortex of some sort and people are disappearing mm -hmm. into another dimension or something because... i think we got to take robert's story somewhat seriously oh i agree i think i think it's because he's the only one who we can who has an account for what who's he survived yeah, to live right. about it mm -hmm. or survived to live about it <laughs> right. survived to, to tell, tell about, about it. it yeah yeah i don't know maybe it is something like a stone yeah, because I just the animal attacks thing is obviously one of the most logical explanations for this. But again, mm -hmm. cougar attacks is possible, but like we mentioned earlier, pretty much extinct in this area since late 1880s. And black bears, they definitely attack people, but people don't usually die as a result of well, yeah, a black would, bear attack. You would just find something. You'd find some trace. Yeah. Black right? bears are the least aggressive bear there are. We have them all over Colorado. Yeah. You never hear mm -hmm. of someone getting attacked by a bear here that's so true especially killed yeah ki yeah you talking about the five of them mm -hmm. were killed a by trace. a black bear well and if you fight back they yeah. they're more inclined to back down than right than be aggressive yeah yeah i don't think it was a black bear how many deaths to black bears like, have been less have than been a, a year or <laughs> less than a year hello less than one a year like very very minimal yeah, I really believe in the the vortex theory. Negative energy vortex, I think, makes the most sense to me. I think the man-eating stone could also be like kind of a more figurative way of talking about the mountain itself or like the peak. Yeah, you that's think a good of point. the mountain as a stone. Yeah, that's and a good in a point. sense, the mountain, the energy you up. kind of yeah, it swallows you up. You get disoriented, and it kind of yeah, you know, sucks you in. Yeah, you, I guess swallows you up. Yeah, yeah, I do believe that these vortexes exist. And I think it could explain a lot of disappearances out there or maybe even like MH370. I always go back to something like that happening in that yeah, situation Yeah, well, it's as like well. there's there's definitely something going on with the the energy in this area. I mean, the fact that people feel disoriented mm -hmm. and people have even reported when they check their GPS, it reads their coordinates are miles away from where they actually yeah, are. Yeah, that's the trippiest part So it's like, me. is there some sort of like electromagnetic anomaly that is creating an increase which i kind of looked into that a little bit and there's actually a map um that the u.s geological society or organization they did a whole electromagnetic like survey of the entire country and i like pinpointed this area and there wasn't really like in the bennington area it wasn't like there was a massive increase in electromagnetic like measured mm -hmm. electromagnetic oh, really? energy in this area it was actually like pretty normal so i was like hmm so mm. And again, maybe maybe it's some sort of energy force that we don't we aren't able to measure or identify. I mean, one of the things that is very rampant in this area is UFO sightings. I mean, this mm -hmm. this happens quite a bit if you look at it. There's actually um, an article. You can take this for what it is, but the Green Mountain states of Vermont placed second in a recent Stacker.com list of the most sightings per capita in the country, and these rankings derive from the National UFO Reporting Center. So quite a bit of ufo activity up there so is it possible that either either because one of the theories is like either the ufos are actually physically abducting these individuals or because there's so much ufo activity there from what we understand about ufos is they have this anti-gravity propulsion system and so when ufos are around whatever they are whether it's some type of craft or an orb a lot of ufos are just orbs of energy or light that what's happening is that because they're around they're distorting the time space continuum so to speak like they're mm -hmm. actually distorting the dimension you know the dimensions that we're in 
And so it's possible that's to an interesting thought. Slip into maybe perhaps a parallel mm. universe, dimension, whatever you want to call it, in this area because there's just so much UFO activity there. Well, also with the amount of strange disappearances that just cannot be explained in forests. And, yeah, it's you know, I often think UFO, and obviously it's an out there theory, and I'm not saying I know this for sure, but wouldn't you think that if you were going to abduct someone from a planet, you'd you'd pluck them where no one is, you know, in the middle of nowhere, out yeah, the woods, absolutely, when they're by themselves? It's just a thought. I do think I, I don't think you can discount the fact, though, that I mean, we're just talking about vast areas of wilderness where people get lost all the time. I mean, you look up any national park near you or any area of open space near where you live and i guarantee you'll find people oh, yeah, have gone sure. missing and most of the times they find the people like mm -hmm. they find people who get lost or there's an explanation get stranded. For it or, exactly yeah mm -hmm. it's not always the case that people are vanishing without a trace and but that's it the, does happen a lot it does it does it does some national parks more than others too mm -hmm. but there are other theories behind that as well i mean bigfoot <laughs> no like government conspiracies oh, and stuff yeah which I, I don't know the more i've looked into that the more i've really come to the conclusion there's really zero evidence to suggest that unless there's unexplained you know or there's unidentified military installations out there in the middle of these forests which again the national parks would make the most sense to me because this is national yeah. you know owned by the government these are national parks so would make sense to have some sort of underground military installation there it kind of goes back to the whole like stranger things concept right of like mm -hmm. they've got these testing facilities experimental facilities where they're doing you know all these wild experiments to create a super soldier whatever you you know whatever it may be and therefore the government or these top secret agencies are abducting people and bringing them into these programs and stuff i do part of me does really believe that i think it's possible Anything's possible, but anything is possible. Possible it was a serial killer in the area. It's possible, but there would yeah, be some. There would be unlikely. some evidence or way yeah. to tie these together in some way. Especially like Frida, for example, she fell in that river and then was running back, and no one could have planned that unless they're just out scouting people. I don't know. That seems very unlikely. Yeah, I mean, some of these where their remains have been recovered i think there's plausible explanations to, the, mm -hmm. to their to their deaths mm -hmm. the ones that i think are a bit more mysterious are the ones where you vanish without a trace i mean yeah and there's no you're just never seen again you're there and mm -hmm. then you're gone and where'd you go and yeah. you're never found even years and years later which again it's a big big forest so you could definitely go miles and miles off the trail to a remote area die of starvation or succumb to the elements and then just you know, you lie there forever and nobody ever finds you mm -hmm. or an animal eventually comes across you and eats your remains. And then, you know, you're just skeletal again, remains yeah. at that point. Yeah. So it's, so it's possible, but I think the paranormal activity that's, that's seen in this area and experience in this area and Robert's experience on the mountain is very yeah, interesting because right. I think there, there's definitely something going on. So what do you lean towards the most? I, I lean towards, the the vortex theory of just either the vortex is disorienting people to the point where they're they're just completely getting lost because things look different they're not realizing that they're going a different way than they think they are and they just get lost 
and end up dying that to me is like kind of a good cross between you know going completely into the paranormal of like yeah they disappeared as a result of a ufo abducting them or Mm. they entered a different dimension to never be seen again i think it's more there's some sort of anomaly going on here that's causing people to get disoriented and what that is we're not quite sure but i i believe that because mainly because of skinwalker ranch because even the scientists that they have down there studying skinwalker ranch report going to certain there's certain hot spots on the ranch where people get physically ill to the point where they pass out they've even had to take people to the hospital based on on things that they've witnessed on this ranch so there's something very very strange that that we can't explain that that's going on in these different areas and it affects it affects you as a human in in multiple ways especially mentally and um emotionally and just you feel drained you feel like the life's being sucked out of you and you just get this weird almost bad feeling that something bad is going to happen and then either some you witness some sort of strange lights or some people see bigfoot out there which a lot of people think that bigfoot is actually a it's a paranormal creature so it's a trans some type of transdimensional creature which is why it's able to evade being seen and being captured on camera so i don't know there's a, there's a lot of possibilities let's ask our more skeptical people uh, over here actually I think that I'd be a lot more skeptical if it wasn't taking place in a handful of years and it was like, yeah, you know, one every five years or something like that. Then I'd be like, eh, is there a correlation? Is there a real reason other than the fact that they went off and got lost or whatever? But because the fact that it most of them did happen in those handful of years makes me wonder if if there was some type of event or something there, some vortex or some you know, UFO activity um, that was taking place in that handful of years that is the reason for all of them. Well, that's what's strange to think about too is, you know, um, Robert was so recent, 2008, and there was such a large gap mm-hmm. between him and the other disappearances over those five years. That's like, and, why but would But he that? like was able to tell, like he's the one that's able to come back and like talk about right. it, you know? Right. And I think, I think, you do have to consider the fact that the time period, right? Yeah. It was much easier to, to get lost and to, you know, people just knew way less back then. About and it was less likely everything. to find someone back then. Yeah. I mean, know? they didn't have the technology that we do now. Right. And, you know, most people are hiking with their cell phones and, you mm-hmm. know, you're able to, you know, find them that way. Or So I think that's part of it is a time period. I mean, you look at the you know, even going into the 60s, 70s, 80s when it comes to people disappearing and serial killers being able to run rampant during that time period because they were able to evade being captured because there's not all this technology. So I think that is part of it. But I do think that Robert's story definitely speaks to what people still experience today. Like people aren't necessarily like disappearing without a trace, but people are experiencing very strange things up in the green mountain wilderness so i don't think you can really discount that i think maybe the disappearances part of it could be explained by more conventional theories but that doesn't discount the fact that perhaps a bennington triangle because of this vortex or whatever this anomaly is that's kind of changing the environment is still active today 
So if you're going to go hiking in Vermont, especially in this Bennington Triangle area, at least bring a compass with you or bring some sort of navigational tool and hope that it works. I think a traditional compass would be interesting to see if that is affected by the anomaly. It seems like coordinates and things like that get messed up. So I wonder if like you're up there hiking on the mountain and you pull your compass out and your compass is like spinning or something. If there's strange, strange things like that, like you're not able to use any navigational tools when you're on the mountain. But wouldn't there be more like record of that? There's a decent amount of stories, but who's going to keep record of this? They don't even keep record of people missing in national parks. So who's going to keep record of that? My advice to you would be don't go. <laughs> don't, don't go. Just don't it. go outside. Stay where it's safe. Julia, what do you think? Um, well, I think that even today, like people don't realize how easy it is to get lost in the woods and mm-hmm. how everything can really start to like look the same. Yeah. And, you know, you're you're on a trail and you're taking a fork in the road and you make a bunch of them. And you're like, oh, on your way back, did I go left or did I go right? And then from there, it's very easy to get lost. Yeah. Surprisingly easy. Yeah, that's and, a good point. Yeah, they didn't they didn't have all trails back in the day. <laughs> no, that's so, true. Couldn't get offline maps going. Yeah. No. Mm-hmm. Well, and the other thing too is that when you're hiking, like say you start in the morning and by the mid-afternoon, the sun, like I think sunlight has a lot to do with being disoriented too. Cause as soon as like the sun goes down, the forest definitely does look a lot different. Mm-hmm. And trees look different and everything can kind of feel like, whoa, like where am I? Because yeah. I mean, yeah. And it's it's dark, like it's yeah, dark, really dark. dark. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. that's why it was smart that Robert brought the headlamp. But I do think it's interesting that that broke because, mm-hmm. yeah. as we've talked about with like the Alaska Triangle, negative energy vortexes, mm-hmm. planes yeah. going missing, mm-hmm. like technology. Mm-hmm. Stops it's like it wants you failing, to, yeah. to stay. Yeah, don't go home. Stay here with us forever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's creepy. I hate that thought. I would never hike alone. I know we've talked about this before. Creeps me out. Hike with a buddy. Yeah, you should. At least you got someone to talk to. Understand it's nice to go get the peace out in the nature, but well, especially if you're going to go miles and miles in. You know, like yeah, maybe bring somebody with you. Yeah, good idea. Well, anyway, we want to hear from you guys. What are your theories on the Bennington Triangle, or did any of the theories that we brought up make most sense to you? Um, Let us know, and we will be back next week. We will. Mm-hmm. Even interesting. For 263. <laughs> yep. We will yep. now be announcing mm-hmm. the next number at the end. Mm-hmm. Write it mm-hmm. down. Get ready. <laughs> Put it in your calendar. 263 coming up at you next week. <laughs> but that's going to be it. Till and next time, mm-hmm. keep taking your mind a mile higher. <laughs>